Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, December the 29th, 2023. It is currently 2.19 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, my goal here, I really have a few goals for what we're going to do. Goal number one is to remind you of the challenge that we have going on right now, the challenge that I am handing everyone uh, for 2024. We're calling it the Sermons 2.0 Sermon Challenge, or I guess the official title would be the 2024 Sermons 2.0 App Sermon Challenge. That's that's way too wordy. That's way too wordy. But it is 2024. But since we didn't do one in 2023, then do we need to state the year? Okay, we'll state the year. 2024, you need to know which app we're referring to. That's the Sermons 2.0 app. And then you kind of need to know what the challenge really is about. Well, it's a sermons challenge. So what we're telling everyone to do is go to the Google Play Store or the Apple App Store, download the Sermons 2.0 app. Sermons 2.0. Once you download the app, yeah, get familiar with it. Make sure you you uh, register so that you can you can uh, follow different broadcasts and series. So that your uh, the tab that says feed, you'll get new uh, content as soon as it's available. You want that ready to go, and just get familiar with the app. And then what we what uh, we're already doing this, but we want you to start on January the one every day in 2024. You grab the sermons. To, you grab your device. You open up the sermons 2.0 app, and you choose a sermon as random random as possible. I suggest going to the discovery tab, hit newest sermons and just click. Don't look, don't try to pick the one that you think sounds interesting. Try to make it as random as possible. The reason we're doing this is one, we want to take advantage of this amazing resource we have, which is the Sermons 2.0 app, which gives you access to millions of sermons. So let's take let's take advantage of that. Two, I want you to just hear different voices. Different, And I want you to just hear random things thrown at you that you're not like walking through a buffet picking what you want, but you're being confronted with maybe a text you don't even really want to study or, or, or you may be confronted with something that, well, is actually convicting to you and because you may be avoiding those things that are convicting clear things you're struggling with, whatever the case may be. And so, and then you're hearing different perspectives, different hermeneutical approaches and it's just, I think it will be a fun adventure through 2024. We're also asking you to grab a notebook. You need to go buy one right now, All right? Call it your Sermons 2.0 Sermon Challenge. And then what you're doing in the very beginning is you're going to start making a list of every sermon you listen to. And this is what we're telling you to do. Write down the title, write down the date, write down the name of the church, Right. And then uh, then after you're done listening, write like a one-sentence summary of what the sermon was about. So for today, the sermon for today for me on the Sermons 2.0 Sermon Challenge is a sermon entitled The Bible Versus Replacement Theology. The Bible Versus Replacement Theology from Bible Baptist Church. All right. I've written that down. Now, also in your notebook, later on in your notebook, you can start, you can do your sermon notes, number those pages so that they're at the beginning where you're making your list. You can put the page number where the notes are for that particular sermon. Even if you don't do notes, you'll have a one sentence summary. 
And by the end of 2024, hopefully your notebook has, you know, a sermon for almost every day of the week. And, and then you can go back and go, oh, that's what that sermon was about. That's what that sermon was about. And hopefully it will prove to have been beneficial. So I'm really trying to remind you of that, encourage you to participate, challenge you, beg, beg you, beg you, plead with you, try to convince you. I don't know. Try to sell it. I don't know. And look, this is not to uh, in any way, shape or form benefit me. I'm not saying download the Sermons 2.0 app and listen to Theology Central. No, I'm saying download the Sermons 2.0 app and listen to things randomly so that you listen to everyone, that you you listen to all the broadcasters. And maybe you'll find broadcasters you like a million times more than me and you even stop listening to me. That's okay. I don't care. I want you to benefit. And I believe in 2024, there's going to be so many distractions, so much craziness, so much chaos. You're going to need a daily, consistent diet of spiritual food where you're focusing on preaching, on hermeneutics, on biblical interpretation, on scripture to keep you grounded. Because I think everything else is going to be, you know, just going to split apart into complete, utter chaos. And we're going to plump, you know, we're going to be plunged into complete darkness is what I think is coming in 2024. Right. I I really have negative feelings towards 2024. I'm hoping I'm very, very wrong. We will see. But whether it's a good year, whether it's a bad year. Daily diet of spiritual food is beneficial, no matter what is happening around us, in us, to us. It doesn't matter. So, so I'm, I, one of the things, one of the goals to, in this hour or, or however long this goes is to just try to convince you to participate. A second thing, what I'm trying to do today, you may be kind of getting an idea as I'm trying to demonstrate to you how one sermon can be utilized throughout your entire day. Just one sermon. If you'll really spend time thinking about it and using it, we hear so many sermons. And what we have a tendency to do is we don't take the sermon and really use it to our spiritual advantage. Let me let me try this. I I grew up in Buffalo Gap, Texas. Now it was called Buffalo Gap because the Native American tribes in that region of Buffalo Gap, which is about 20 minutes, 15 minutes from where I'm currently sitting, was kind of this valley between these large hills where the Native American tribes hunted and did different things with buffalo. Now, also, we know at that time, uh, many, I guess, in ways to punish the Native Americans and try to starve those tribes. In many cases, there were these wild buffalo hunts where they just killed the buffalo and just left them to rot so that the Native Americans would not have a, a food source. And, and here in uh, Abilene, Texas, there's a place called Frontier, Texas. And it's uh, a, a museum about things that happened in this particular area of Texas. And at one time they had this display, this huge display of like buffalo skulls, the skulls of buffaloes, right? And they had this information about how they would just slaughter, you know, thousands of buffaloes just to try to, you know, take away a food source from the Native Americans so that they would be weak or that they would submit and, all, and just a horrible thing. But in discussing about how, like, say, Native American tribes would hunt the buffalo is that they would utilize every single part of the buffalo, everything. They did not waste anything. Now, 
I'm not some expert on whether how 100% accurate that information is, but it's a pretty common reported thing and I've read it in numerous books and, and numerous things. So I'm assuming it's somewhat accurate. It's based on something accurate that they used every part of the animal. Well, so many times I think we come in and listen to a sermon and then we just kind of leave it to rot. We just leave it. We leave it. We come in. Oh, there was a sermon. Boom. Now we, or, or we just complain and grumble or we, or we, or we just want to argue with the pastor and how he presented it and what he had to say. Instead of saying, okay, he handed me this sermon. Now I'm going to go, I'm going to take it home. And I'm, in a sense, I'm going to, I'm going to skin the sermon and I'm going to use every part and I'm going to cook it and I'm going to devour it and I'm going to use it to make tools and I'm going to use it to, for, to, to make, you know, some kind of clothing and I'm going to use it for this and I'm going to use it for this. We don't use all the parts of the sermon. We just leave it to waste right there in the ground. Well, what I'm trying to demonstrate today is that this one sermon that I listened to today, right, for my sermon challenge, the Bible versus replacement theology, we've already used it, part of it, for our today's focus podcast series. Now we're going to use it for our our series on biblical hermeneutics. Same sermon. We're going to, we're going to basically be almost two hours of broadcasting from one sermon and we've not even come close to using it all. Every sermon you hear, you either are kind of like, oh, there was a sermon and you just leave it to rot. You take it, you just take it for granted. You don't even care because you know, next Sunday you're going to get another sermon or you can get one five minutes from now. Or you're going to be, you're going to take it and you're going to bring it home and you're going to use every part of it, not just to criticize the pastor or to attack other people, but use it for your own spiritual advantage. Sometimes we don't even really talk about the sermons. We don't even think about the sermons. We forget them. And that's why the, it's so, and I think that's what a lot of American Christians do. We go to church, we hear the sermon, and we're just like the people who killed the buffalo and just let it ride. Or we use it for, you know, to hurt. We, we almost use the sermon in a way, and that sermon turns into a source of controversy or something that we can argue about instead of taking it and using it for something beneficial. Even if you disagree with the sermon. If you disagree with the sermon, but it's forcing you to get into the text and study and think about it, you should be grateful that you disagree because it probably made you study twice as much. So what we're going to do is, first thing, I'm, I want you to be, I want you to participate in this challenge because I really think it's going to be advantageous to everyone involved. But two, I want to just show you how one sermon you're gonna you're gonna grab that app one day and listen to a sermon, and you may think, okay, I'm ready to move on. Just think about: Are you really taking that sermon home and doing everything, dressing it, all the different things you would do with an animal, of which you can, or are you just leaving the animal on the ground? Now, I don't know if that illustration is 1000% perfect, but I, and I, you know, it wasn't an, an illustration that I worked out perfectly, but I think you get the idea. So we're going to go back to that very sermon that we've already, li- we used just a very small section this morning, and now we're going to go back to it. And here's what he's doing. Obviously, the name of the sermon is the Bible versus replacement theology. So we have a very good idea that he's against replacement theology, and he believes the Bible teaches something different. Whether you're in support of replacement theology, or I know many don't like the title replacement theology, all right, but we'll let him build up his argument, put forth his hypotheses. 
But right here in this sermon, where we are right now, he's starting to talk about putting together. Well, he's, first he's talking about how everything has its proper place. Everything has its proper place. If you want your house clean, everything, you need to have a proper place for everything. And then everything needs to be in its proper place, right? And and Bible study, everything, uh, scripture has its proper place and everything needs to be put in its proper place. And with like a puzzle, you can have a million pieces, but you've got to put the pieces together before you get the completed picture, right? Well, guess what? In, the, in, in Bible study and hermeneutics, you got to see all the scriptures. So you got to put them in their proper place so you see the full picture, So he is going to make an argument that if you put everything in its proper place, you won't end up at, you won't end up in the replacement theology camp. You'll end up in what he's referencing as the biblical camp. Now, whether you agree or disagree, we can all agree that studying the Bible is putting the pieces in their proper places. So we're just going to jump right into this kind of illustration that he's doing so. And we're going to listen to some of this as well, to gain some insight about biblical hermeneutics, and then we'll listen to how him how he exercises his biblical hermeneutics to try to put forth his point, and we'll use this for our series on biblical hermeneutics. So this one sermon has already provided us material for today's focus. Now it's providing us material for biblical hermeneutics. Look, I could I could I could really try to prove a point today. I probably could put put. I, I, I'm assuming I probably could get five, maybe six, maybe seven hours of content from this one sermon. And I don't even know if we would use it all. And we're not even just doing a straight sermon review. If I just did a straight sermon review, we could get five hours out of it, six hours out of it. The value of that sermon really depends on what you do with it. The people who go to church and in a sense leave the sermon laying in the parking lot, leaving the carcass of the sermon in the parking lot to just rot, they're not going to get much from it. For the people who place the, the, the sermon in the back seat and carry it at home with them, and then they really use every part, I think they will benefit more from it. So let's use... This sermon that was preached, I don't remember the date that was preached. I forgot to write it down. Um, I, I should have put that in my notebook. Hang on, let me tell you. I can probably tell you. Let's see here. It was preached on December the 28th, 2023. 12 23 So I'm going to put that down here in my notebook. 12-28-23. So something that, uh, and it's, so it's the next day. Or maybe that's the day it was uploaded, so it could have been the 27th, but that's the day they, day they put down. And again, this comes from Bible Baptist Church, the Bible versus replacement theology. You need to go download this sermon today. You need to listen to all of it, whether you agree or disagree. I'm trying to demonstrate to you that every sermon has great potential depending on what you decide to do with it. So let's jump in. Now, he's right in the middle of the illustration about puzzles. So it may, we may, we're just going to jump right in. It may not be a smooth transition, but then it'll start smoothing out as he deals with some things very much applicable to biblical hermeneutics. Here we go. Right? Because once you have all the pieces separated, then you're going to have an easier time putting the thing together, which is what a puzzle is all about. You're trying to put it together. And, and the illustration here is that the Bible is, is, is really like a puzzle in many ways. The Word of God stands as one cohesive unit, 
right? But in order to put the puzzle pieces together properly, you've got to recognize and identify and separate the different pieces so that you can make sure you put them where they're supposed to go. Now, you can't chop it all up and over-divide it and hyper-divide it. That's an error on one side of the road that gets you down into the ditch and gets you stuck, but you've got to recognize that there are divisions, okay? So this really helps us explain how it is that people can use Bible verses to teach false doctrine. People use Scripture to teach things that are contrary to Scripture. They'll take a verse or take a passage and lift it out of its context and put it in the wrong place. If you've been in Bible school, you've heard it a hundred times. Heresy is truth that is misplaced. It's something taken from the Bible, and everything in the Bible is true and right and good. But if we don't rightly divide it, if we get that truth put in the wrong place, we're going to be all out of sorts and all messed up. Now, that- now you may want to write that quote down. Heresy is truth that is misplaced. Heresy is truth that is misplaced. I mean, that, that right there is worth, uh, worth, I mean, that's it. That's, I mean, that's worth everything. I mean, that's, I mean, see, that right there would just make the whole Sermons 2.0 sermon challenge worth it just in one day. I mean, that's an amazing quote. And for us to really think about heresy is just truth that is misplaced. So sometimes when you're trying to identify heresy, you got to figure out the truth and how they've misplaced that truth. What did they do? How did they misplace that truth? Let me just give you in a, 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 a quick example. I think charismatic theology is heretical, 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 heretical. I think charismatic theology is a cancer and Christianity. I think charismatic theology needs to be eradicated, removed, and I wish it never existed. I loathe it. But let's just take one key element of charismatic theology. A very key element in charismatic theology is that by his stripes, we are healed. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that guarantees us physical healing in the here and the now. All we have to do is we don't have to ask if it be his will. It is his will. We just have to believe. And if we believe, we will receive and we will be physically healed. It doesn't matter if it's cancer. It doesn't matter what. You can be even raise people from the dead. Now, I believe that's heresy, but where is the truth that is misplaced? Well, by his stripes, we are healed. In his atoning work, there is healing guaranteed. First, it's spiritual healing, right? Because he came to save us from our sins. But guess what? In Christ Jesus, when I put my faith in him, then guess what? I am guaranteed that there will come a day that I will receive a new body. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be a complete healing. By his stripes, I will be healed. So there is truth that healing is in the atonement. They just take it and misplace it and put that promise for the here and the now, which we know is not true. Heresy, and that's just one example, we could offer hundreds probably, heresy is truth misplaced. 
So sometimes when dealing with heresy, identify the truth and figure out where, how it has been misplaced and then see if you can say, wait, wait, let's take the puzzle. Let's take it apart again. Let's take it apart again. Let's put it back together. Oh, so many, so many different ways. Uh, I, I want to run. I, I like, there's so many things we could do with that. So many, that's, br- that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So in theology or in hermeneutics, you got to take all the pieces of the puzzle, the Bible, and you got to put things in their proper place. Now, the question is, or the issue is, we don't always agree on what is the proper place. Oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. All right, let's see where he's going to go. That leads us to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, another step towards our topic this evening. Because there are any number of different divisions. We'll spend an entire semester in Bible school just getting into rightly dividing the Word of God. But what I believe is the most important and probably the most confused division in the Bible that we've got to recognize to keep it straight and to get it right is the one that we have here in this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 10.32. The Bible says, Give none offense, neither to the Jews nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. In the Bible, there are three groups of people that we have to recognize, and we have to distinguish, and we have to be able to properly divide. In 1 Corinthians 10.32, the Jew, the Gentile, the church. Now, this verse is very important. Now, there can be be massive disagreements here. I understand that. But he's saying hermeneutically, this passage gives us three groups and we have to, in a sense, understand and keep them distinct to some way, to some level. There is the Jews, right? Right. There are the Gentiles and then there is the church of God. And there is a distinction. Now, I know some will say, but in Christ, there is no distinction. We're neither male nor female. Well, the, the people will use that to justify female pastors, right? So in one sense, we are one in Christ, but can there still not be distinctions even though we're one in Christ? And can those distinctions mean God is not done with the Jews are with Israel and still has promises that must be fulfilled to them. He also is obviously salvation has come to the Gentiles. And then th- that salvation has us in the church of God and the body of Christ. And there is a unity there, but that doesn't also mean that there are, is somehow a distinction as well. There, we may be one in Christ, male and female. That doesn't mean that there aren't distinction and roles that God has assigned male and females in the Bible, right? Can you not be one and yet there be this distinction to some level? Let's see what he's going to say. Quick definitions. The Jews, those are physical Flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How do you become a Jew? You are born one. It is a matter of your first birth, of your lineage. Yes, sir. So what's a Gentile? Everybody else. By their first birth, flesh and blood descendants of anyone but the Abraham, Isaac, Jacob line. Okay? How do you become a Gentile? You are born a Gentile. It's a matter of your first birth, of your physical birth. Now, the church of God is comprised of Jews and Gentiles who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have been born 
again, they have a second birth that supersedes and overrides their first birth is much more important than who our parents were, is who our Savior is. And all of that division between Jew and Gentile, that that middle wall of partition in Ephesians chapter 2, it's broken down in the body of Christ and we are unified with every other believer. So Jew, physical. Gentile, physical. Church, spiritual. And the only way to become a member of the body of Christ, the church, is to have a second birth. And that makes you one with every other member. Of the body of Christ. Now, these three groups are separate and distinct throughout all of Scripture, and we don't have time to run all of that this evening. It's mentioned uh, very often as we teach and preach uh, through the Bible. But just let me give you a, a quick list of errors that arise as a result of failing to make that distinction. And we could go on and on and on with that list this evening, but think about that Sabbath keeping. Seventh-day Adventism. What's the problem? A failure to separate the Jew from the church. Israel from the church. The Sabbath, that's a Jewish thing. That's a covenant between God and the nation of Israel thing. Exodus 20, Ezekiel 20, Colossians chapter 2. There are people in Revelation 2 who say they are Jews and are not. That's the Sabbath-keeping problem. What about sign gifts? Glossolia. Charismatic doctrine, speaking in tongues, healing, all of that emphasis. What's it a failure to recognize? That the Jews require a sign. Right? That, that, that's a dispensational problem. That's a rightly dividing the word of truth problem. That's a not distinguishing Israel from the church problem. Where's a prosperity gospel come from. The, the, the preachers who preach the prosperity gospel, every now and then, they read a verse of scripture. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's there. It's just not for New Testament believers. God promised Israel in the land health, wealth, protection, prosperity, peace, all of that was promised in the word of God to someone, just not American Christians in 2024. Please note, heresy is truth misplaced. Right, you've got all kinds of verses in the Old Testament that says, hey, Israel, if you go into the land, you do this, 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 this. You get this, 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 you get this. We come along and say, see, anyone who will obey God gets this. No, it was a specific promise for Israel. People do that in Jeremiah. I know the plans I have for you to bless you. Those That was for people coming out of Babylonian captivity. So many errors and heresy is not making a proper distinction and putting things where they belong. In many cases, heresy is truth that is simply misplaced. In this case, you're mis- the, the truth that is misplaced is you're misplacing who the promise was to. Who you got to draw the distinction between Israel and the church. And I know many people don't like that. They want to obliterate that distinction. You obliterate the distinction. I think you run into, well, hermeneutical difficulties. Let's see where else he's going to go. Still 23. I'm hoping for the next year calendar to roll over. So it, what is it? It's not rightly dividing. It's failure to divide church and Israel. Uh, an emphasis on politics over witnessing. 
What's the problem there? We're not here to build an earthly kingdom. Right? Right? Kingdom of God, not kingdom of heaven. Church, not Israel. This is interesting. The post-tribulation rapture. What does that teaching stem from? I'm telling you, it stems from a failure to rightly divide the church from Israel. I believe we'll circle back to that uh, a little bit this evening. But the reason we give all that as introduction is because the topic we're going to cover, more of a Bible study, less preachy, a little bit less practical. We'll try to come up with some practical points of application along the way. It's something we discuss every now and then in Bible school. The notes tonight are compiled from a few different courses and classes. Uh, But the topic is replacement theology. Now, when I say that, when I say replacement theology, just help me out. A little participation as we get started. Raise your hand if you think you have a really good idea of what I mean by that. What is Once again, and this is becoming interesting, because I think the sermon that we talked about yesterday in our Sermons 2.0 app sermon challenge, the same thing happened. Uh, the pastor was worried that, hey, guys, this is going to be like a, it's going to be kind of academic. This is going to be kind of a Bible study. Pastors always seem to have to apologize for that. Pastor, stop apologizing for that. Let's make sure the people learn that they come to church to be equipped so they're no longer tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. If they want practical little sermonettes with three little points and it feels like a sermon, there's plenty of churches that will provide it. If you're willing to dig in, go in and teach just say, that's the way it's going to be. You don't need to apologize. And it's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll find some points of application. Don't worry. No, you say, hey, we're going to teach. Get a notebook. Let's go in. Now, you will get criticized for it because I have been criticized for that my entire life. It doesn't feel like church. It feels like a university classroom. It feels like a seminary. Okay, well, hey, I'm sorry you don't like it. But trust me, well, let me grab my iPad really quick. Oh, here's a church. It's located 5.2 miles from me. Here's one that's 8.2 miles. Here's, oh wait, there's 250 churches in about a 50 mile radius from where we're standing. You got 250 to choose from. Run and be free. And trust me, many of them won't sound like a seminary or a university classroom. So, I mean, like, now most left and went and found the other. And that's okay. That's okay. I mean, it's sad. It's sad, but if people don't want it, they don't want it. The good thing is they got plenty to choose from that will give them what they want. They they want something different. And I want a place where people who say, I want to learn, I want to dig in. You gotta but pastors are always afraid to do that because they're like, well, people won't like that. I know people won't like it. And it's just sad that people don't. All right, but let's see where he's gonna go. Replacement theology. He's gonna offer up some form of a definition here. Here we go. What is meant by replacement theology? Okay, good. Now, if, if, if you've heard that, but you're not real sure what it means, how many of those do we have? You've heard of replacement theology before, but not real sure. How many of you just heard of it for the first time this evening? Okay, good. Now, listen, what if you went to a church website, right? And, and, and before you visit this church, before you went to this church, you're going to find out what does this church believe? What does this church teach? What if you went to a church website and it said as one of its core points of doctrine on its statement of faith, replacement theology. It would be important to know what that means. 
And I bring that up because it's not a hypothetical situation. We are often asked to recommend churches in different areas, so I spend a lot of time on church websites, and I've seen it advertised for independent Baptist churches. And I appreciate their candor. I appreciate their honesty. I think everybody just ought to tell whoever wants to know what it is that you believe, but it'd be real important to know what that is. Is it right or is it wrong? Is it biblical? Is it not biblical? There's another reason I'd I'd like to bring this topic up and cover it, at least in summary this evening. Come with me next to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll illustrate that reason with this passage. Genesis chapter number 12. I'm not so much concerned with the terminology and and uh, knowing all the all the fancy theological words and so forth, but if it's something that's out there, it's something to be aware of. Only thing I disagree, and I know pastors always say that, almost kind of look down on knowing the fancy theological terms. No, you need to know the fancy theological terms, right? That's a part of being equipped. You know the term, and then if the, as more familiar you are with the term, then the more familiar you'll become with the concept. What pastors do is you don't need to know the term, you just need to know the concept. But I think you need to know the terminology as well. You need to know the language that is used. I think it's an important thing. I think it's a part about being equipped. You need to be able, you see that term, you need to know what it is. You see the term, you need to know what it is. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's it's so weird. It's like we're always, sometimes in the church, we're always afraid of like, oh, we don't want to be too academic. We don't want to. And it's like, we, we always want to like dumb it down. It's like, okay, kids, we got to keep it at the fourth grade. No. How about we get them to the university? How about we get them to post-grad? Well, like, why, why do we have to keep everyone like in the, you know, the youth group? Like, why, why, why can't we move Christians forward? And it's okay to learn. We, when, we, when kids go to school, we want them to learn. We want them to be challenged. We want them to learn the big words, okay? We can learn the big words. And I'd like to make you aware of it this evening or remind you of it this evening. For this reason, Genesis chapter 12, verse number 1. is a really important passage of scripture. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land. And that word is key. Unto a land that I will show thee and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. Here's a great promise in the Bible. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth Be blessed. That truth that God spoke to Abram in Genesis 12 has never been abrogated. God God never took that back. Still applies. Still holds true. God blesses those who bless Abraham's descendants. And God curses those who curse that promised Line. Now, I'm not going to wade very deep into current events this evening. The way I stay so happy is I don't pay very much attention to the news. But I am going to make a political statement. I'm going to make it because it's a biblical statement. You ready? I'm for Israel. I support Israel. Do I agree with everything the nation of Israel does? Absolutely not. Do I believe the nation of Israel is right with God? Of course not. But do I believe the promise of Genesis 12, 3? Absolutely. Yeah. 
In fact, I am inclined to believe that this promise in the Word of God may be one of the only reasons that our nation has not completely crumbled to the ground. I don't know how you vote. I, I don't care a whole lot how you vote, but I try to make sure that anybody whose name I'm going to check on a ballot supports the nation of Israel. If I've got any Bible to go on to make any kind of choice or decision along those lines, I'm, I'm going Genesis 12. Right? Now, why do I say that? Well, have you not failed to notice, again, I don't pay very much attention to the news, but, but I've noticed an increasing anti-Semitic sentiment in our culture. Have you seen that? There are segments of our society that are fueled by the news media and higher education, and we could cite news stories and articles and so forth. That's not our point this evening. But, but, but there are segments of society where there is more support for genocidal terrorists than for the nation of Israel. And because of Genesis 12.3, that is really troubling for the future of your nation. And I'm not sure how much control I really have over that or what I'm supposed to do about it other than vote the best I can and witness and win people to Jesus Christ and teach the Bible. But I'm even more troubled when I realize that there are independent Baptist churches and independent Baptist pastors who align themselves with those who stand for and support Israel's enemies instead of Israel. And that's a reality. That is a, that is a situation. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, if you recognize that or not. But, but it's, it's based, and here's what you need to understand, it's based on bad Bible doctrine. Yes, sir. It's based on replacement theology. It's based on the same falsehood that led the Roman Catholic Church to send crusaders to the Holy Land to conquer and to kill in the name of Christ and give every scoffer and skeptic you try to witness to a reason to reject Christianity. It was replacement theology. Listen to this. It is the same theological basis for a post-trib rapture prophetic viewpoint. Isn't that an interesting thing? Anti-Semitism, Roman Catholic Crusades, and post-trib rapture teaching all have something in common. Not rightly dividing the church and Israel. Now, whether you agree or disagree with maybe some of those conclusions he just put together... Again, you would have to at least acknowledge if you do not draw a distinction between Israel and the church, or you basically say Israel is finished, national Israel is no, God has no more promises with national Israel, he's done with national Israel, and those promises, land and everything else about Israel is gone, and it it belongs to quote-unquote spiritual Israel, it belongs to the church, you have to acknowledge that that leads to some possible ramifications about how you see world events, 
about how you interpret many of those promises, because inevitably you will then have to rely on an allegorical approach. Land is no longer land. Israel is no longer Israel. And then, well, that has hermeneutical implications. That's a strange grouping, isn't it? But it just illustrates how important it is that we rightly divide the Word of God. Okay? So we're going to talk about replacement theology, what it is, why it's unbiblical. We probably won't be able to go through all the verses where it comes from in the Bible tonight. We'll more so introduce the topic this evening. Replacement theology is also known as supersessionism. It is it's the teaching that the church replaces Israel or that the church supersedes Israel, that what was Israel in the Old Testament is no longer a thing. It becomes the church in the New Testament. The position of Now, what some will say is, no, 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 it was never about national Israel. It was always about spiritual Israel. It was always about those who believe. So the church doesn't replace it or supersede it. It was always about the church. Now, some will kind of try to offer that as an argument, and you can take that where you want. Now, I think he's getting ready to mention the word reformed theology. I think he's getting ready, and I cut him off in mid-word. I apologize, so let's listen. Replacement theology is that God made promises to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but he changed his mind. Okay, he didn't mention reform, he mentioned replacement theology. Now, when he, now we have to be fair. I think those who hold to a kind of the church, you know, you know, replaced it, succeeded it, however words you want to use it. I don't know if they would say God changed his mind. I think that would what they would say is Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God that required them to meet a certain obedience and they failed. And because they failed, then God set them aside for the church. Now, again, others will say, well, it was the promise was never made with national Israel. It was always made with spiritual Israel. It was always made with the church. So they, there's lots of different ways that they could approach this. I don't, very few would be like, well, God changed his mind. Now, I think inevitably it feels that way, right? Hey, God made promises to them. And he's like, nope, now they're yours. And you're kind of like, whoa, what, what just happened? But I don't know if they would ever use that terminology just to try to be fair. He adjusted those promises and he transferred those promises to the church. Now, there are three different positions on this issue, and I think it helps when we look at them side by side. So here are the three comparisons. And again, it's terminology. The terminology is not important, but the truth is important. There's dispensationalism. It's what we believe the Bible teaches, according to 2 Timothy 2.15. Dispensationalism says that the church and Israel are separate and distinct, two different things, always, and that God is not finished with the nation of Israel. He still has a plan and a purpose for the nation of Israel. He will return to his dealings with the nation of Israel. That's referred to as a dispensational viewpoint. Contrasted to that is something called covenant theology. This is your Reformed or Calvinistic teaching most of the time. Covenant theology is the teaching that the church is an expansion of Israel. 
that all the promises God made actually are fulfilled somehow in the church. That the church in Israel, not two different things, always have been the same thing. There is one people of God, it is said. That's covenant theology. Okay, now I'm much more familiar with the covenant theology approach because it's much more prevalent in the Reformed world. And well, I'm pretty Reformed in almost every area. But again, I I do not like to be associated with a team, right? So I don't care if I upset Reform. This is what always happens. I upset non-Reformed people. I upset Reformed people because everybody wants you to declare your team and wear the jersey. And I'm like, I'm not wearing the jersey. I'm not declaring the team. I'm going to study the Bible and I'm going to try to figure it out. And I'm going to study and study and study. And the conclusion I come to today means nothing when I study tomorrow because I'm going to throw away today's conclusion to study the text anew tomorrow. So tomorrow I may change the conclusion I had today and the next day I may change that conclusion because I'm the never ending pursuit of truth with or without offense to your team. I don't care about your team. I don't care about your team. I care, I care about trying to figure out the text. All right. Which always ticks everyone off. And it's probably inevitably why my church would, well, well, is small and only getting smaller because more and more people want a team. They want, and they want everything to feel uh, yeah, they, they just want this kind of a church template that everyone follows. And I, and I burn the template down and I don't care about the team. I care about trying to figure out the text. And that's what drives people crazy who listen to me. They're like, well, I thought I agreed with you. Then I disagreed with you. And then I'm like, because I'm not following the template of the team. So yeah, I definitely much more reformed, but I'm sorry, I don't follow covenant theology in this area. I believe there's a distinction between Israel and the church, and I believe that distinction is needed to maintain some kind of consistent hermeneutic because I can't have passages where land is not land, Israel is not Israel, and none of this is literal. But then in the same passages, I'm like, behold, a virgin is going to have an actual child and is going to be born in actual Bethlehem. And he's actually, well, then wait, but, 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 but he's not actually going to rule and reign on the throne of David. So that's, that's, that's spiritual, but he's actually going to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, oh, what, I, which part is literal? Which part is not? I don't know. I can't keep up with it. Replacement theology is a little bit different. It, underst- it, it, it recognizes some distinction between Israel and the church, but again, teaches that the church is the replacement for Israel. Replacement theology teaches that God has cast away his people. The promises of the Old Testament are spiritualized, in order to apply to the church in the New Testament. Let me give you five reasons why that is an unbiblical position. Come with me to Romans chapter number 9, first of all. Romans chapter number 9. And the first reason is because of the really clear statements in the Bible that the groups are not the same. earth-shattering logic here. Things that are different are not the same. Romans chapter 9 and verse number 1, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness 
and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now listen, I can't read those verses without falling under conviction. I could say those words, but I don't think I could say that the Holy Spirit told me to say those words, and I'm not lying. Paul isn't putting on here. Paul's not acting spiritual here. Paul's not saying what he's supposed to say because he's writing a letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Look what he said. I could wish that myself were accursed. Paul said, I would go to hell if they could be saved. He had that great of a burden for the lost. He had that great of a desire to see his people come to know Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, i got a long way to go. God help me care for the lost around me. Verse number three, my kinsmen, my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, verse four, who are Israelites. Obviously, Paul is talking first birth. Paul is talking physical kinship. Paul is talking about flesh and blood. Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, and the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God, and the promises, who is the fathers, whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Look at chapter 10, verse number 1, along with that. Chapter 10, verse 1 of Romans. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Okay? So it's really clear in these two passages, and this is all through the New Testament, that there is a physical people, Israel, and that there is a spiritual people, the church, and the two exist at the same time, side by side, and that the physical Israel did not cease to exist when the church came into existence. Because again, here's the teaching replacement theology that that the church replaces Israel, that the church supersedes Israel, that Israel kind of morphed into what is now the body of Christ. But really clearly in Romans 9 and 10, we've got both of these groups side by side at the same time. They can't be the same thing. Now, there are passages, we're not going to read all of them this evening, that call us the children of Abraham, that speaks of Israel in a spiritual sense. But how can Paul be praying for Israel to be saved if Israel is the saved? It it, it just doesn't make good sense at all. Come to Galatians chapter number 3. We'll try to run these references quickly. Galatians chapter number 3. And verse number, beginning in verse 26, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The the new birth which comes about as a result of, of, of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, receiving Jesus Christ. John 1 chapter 12 makes you a child of God for as, as many... 1 verse 12, John 1 12. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is one of those passages that is used to teach replacement. Theology. If remember, if and here it says, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you're the seed of Abraham, and in Christ, there's no Jew and there's no Gentile. 
But if this is to say that the church means there are no longer Jews, it would also have to mean that no, or there are no longer Gentiles. And it would also have to mean that the church should take its cues from Target and take the signs off the bathroom doors because there's no more male or female. If, if, if it means one thing in one place in the verse... It has to mean the same thing in the rest of the verse. If there is no more Jew means that the church replaced Israel, then it also has to mean that the church replaced the Gentile, the church replaced male, the church replaced female. We still have signs on the doors and we're not taking them down. That is an incorrect understanding of the verse. Ephesians chapter number 2. And I think the way to understand that is that in Christ, there is this unity. That does not mean God is done with the nation of Israel or that they are superseded or done away with or replaced. It's like God made these promises to them. They have to be fulfilled to them. At the same time, he brought Jew and Gentile together, broke down the middle wall of partition in the church. That does So there's a spiritual unity at the same time. There is a national identity. Uh, there, is a, there is a racial identity. Those who are Jews physically, who are of the nation of Israel, God made specific promises to them. And unless you either understand those promises as literal or if you make them spiritual, if you make those promises spiritual, then what other things then... Are, are spiritual and not literal. I can go through the Old Testament and go, well, that, that, that's not a literal. Nope, nope, that's not literal. That's not literal. That, that's not literal. That's not literal. That's not literal. That It wasn't a literal plagues that literally uh, uh, fell upon Egypt. That wasn't a literal parting of the Red Sea. That wasn't a literal flood. That wasn't a literal six days. That wasn't a literal this. That wasn't a literal that. That wasn't a, well, that point, where do you stop? Let's continue. Galatians, Ephesians, chapter number 2. We could read the entire chapter. Let's just read verses 11 through 13. Again, we, we, we see these groups very clearly, very obviously separate and distinct throughout the New Testament. Ephesians 2, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye, the, the, the people in Ephesus who now are saved, ye being in time past Gentiles... In the flesh. Remember, this is a physical thing. This is a fleshly thing. That is what they were before they met Jesus Christ. Who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So you were Gentiles, but you heard the word of truth, heard the gospel of your salvation, you believed the gospel, you received the Savior, and you were Gentiles, but now you're not Jews. You didn't go from being a Jew to being a Gentile. You went from being a or from being a Gentile to being a Jew. You went from being a Gentile to being in the church, joined together with those who were by their first birth, maybe the same thing or maybe something else. This middle wall of partition is broken down, and we are both one in Christ Jesus. So, so all three groups, very separate and distinct throughout the New Testament. But next, I want you to think about this. Two more reasons why replacement theology is unbiblical. 
Because the promises to Abraham, we'll go back and read them, were unconditional. The promises to Abraham were unconditional, and the promises to Abraham cannot be spiritualized. In order to say that the church replaces Israel, you've got to do something with all those promises that God made. And he made a lot of them. There are 39 books in the Old Testament. Genesis 12 to Malachi chapter 4 is all about the nation of Israel. And God made a lot of promises and a lot of prophecies. And there's a whole lot of stuff there you've got to account for. And the way that replacement theology accounts for it is it spiritualizes the promises. It alters and changes the promises. But we need to notice that the promises are unconditional. The promises can't be spiritualized. Genesis chapter 12, back to where we were a little bit ago. Genesis chapter number 12. When we read verse number 1 before, we emphasized the word land, and that's a word that shows up over and over. I also want you to note the word everlasting as we read these passages. Genesis 12, God promised Abraham to make him a great nation, to make his name great. His name would be a blessing. He will bless those that bless him, curse those that curse him. He departs out of Haran, verse 4, takes Sarah and Lot, verse number 5. They went to go forth, into verse 5, into the land of Canaan. Into the land of Canaan they came. Verse 6, the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared, verse 7, and Abram said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. God made a lot of promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. And they all focused on the piece of property where Abraham and his descendants were said by God to dwell. Look at Genesis 15. Genesis 15. Verse number 1, God appears to Abram, I am thy shield, exceeding great reward. Abraham still has no child, no seed. And verse number 4, your servant's not going to be your heir. I'm going to give you a son. Verse 5, look at the heaven, tell the stars that thou be able to number them. So shall thy seed be. He believed the Lord. Verse number 6, verse 7, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Earl the Chaldees to give thee this, here's the word, land to inherit it. God asks, or I'm sorry, Abraham asks God, verse 8, Lord God, whereby shall I know? The Jews require a sign. That goes all the way back to Genesis 15. Verse number 18, the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land. And then he goes and he describes the land. Chapter 17, verse number 7. Chapter 17 and verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, and their generations. Look at this, for an ever lasting covenant to be a God unto thee and thy seed after thee and I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger all the land of Canaan look at this for an everlasting possession and I will be their God did did we ever read in those passages and I know we read them quickly you can go back and read them again tonight did we ever read Abraham if you do this then I will do that. That's not how the passage reads. It is a one-way covenant. It is an unconditional covenant. It is a promise from God to 
Abram, not based on anything that he would or wouldn't do, simply based on the goodness and the purpose and the will of God. And there, we will have to stop. And now you can go look it up. The name of that sermon is the Bible versus Replacement Theology. That sermon, where did I put my notebook? That sermon is from, I think, Bible Believers Baptist Church. Yes, Bible Believers Baptist Church, David A. Brown. You should look it up. That was the sermon. Now, remember, what we were go- hoping to do today is we talked a little bit about biblical hermeneutics. Yes, we uh, we came up with this concept or this quote, very powerful quote, that heresy is truth that is misplaced. Awesome truth. We looked at some of the issues with replacement theology, how some of these promises have not been fulfilled. And so there has to be a distinction between Israel and the church to some level, even though there's a unity within the church. This both can somehow be true. All right. We talked a lot about this, but remember all of what I was trying to do is one, remind you of our challenge that we have for 2024. Download the Sermons 2.0 app. Every day you open it, you go to the Discoverer tab, You can go to new sermons. I don't care where you look around on the app. Just choose random sermons, one a day. Take a notebook, write down the name of the sermon, the date, the church, and then after the sermon is over, write a summary statement. In your notebook, you can also do detailed sermon notes. That's where by the end of the year of 2024, you'll have a list of every sermon you listen to and one little sentence describing what you got from it or what you remember from it or what you learned from it, all right, or, or a summary of it so that you can look back and, and, and re- really remember what you listened to. So I wanted to do that, but I also wanted to demonstrate that this is now two hours of broadcasting about one sermon. And we didn't even finish the sermon. What I want to show you is that some people go to church, they hear a sermon, and in a sense, they leave the carcass of the sermon laying in the parking lot to rot, and they forget about it and they don't care. Well, you can take that sermon with you instead of just using it to complain and grumble and and argue about something. You can take it and in a sense, you can go home and like, you know, fill dressing an animal. You can take every part of that sermon and you can use it for food, for tools, for clothes, and you can part and you can gain great spiritual benefit from it. But it's all depending on what you, the listener, does with a sermon. Now, if you haven't listened to a sermon today, well, there you go. The Bible versus replacement theology, we've reviewed most of it now. So there's probably about, I don't know, maybe about 20 minutes left, 30 minutes left. You can fast forward through it and you can listen to the rest. Again, the Bible versus replacement theology, uh, Bible Baptist Church. The date of it is 12-28-23. There you go. Hopefully we accomplished a couple of things. There's far more to say. Now, if you go and listen to it and there's something he says in the rest of it that you want me to talk about, just email me and go, hey, this is the timestamp. He said this. I would love to get your thoughts. And then I, if need be, we'll come back and do another hour. We, uh, who knows? Who knows? There you have it. There's much there. to Oh, so much we could talk about. So much we could talk about. You can go listen to our series that we did on dispensationalism, right? So we went through all the dispensations, and we talked about a lot of the issues that he mentioned right there. And I think it's much for you to consider and to meditate on. 
but I will stop right there because we're over an hour. So thank you so very much for listening. You can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Consider the challenge and consider a new way of listening to sermons. God bless.